Welcome back to C-Lab, the customer education lab, where we are in the process of reviewing the 1997 book, Strategies for Effective Customer Education by Peter Honbein. We're showing it on the screen. We're showing it. If you're, if you're watching the video of this, we're showing it on the screen, uh, written for the American Marketing Association. So uh, if you have not heard part one of this episode, I would recommend that you go back and listen to part one, uh, because otherwise this is not going to make a ton of sense. This episode is brought to you by TechSmith. That's right, TechSmith. You know them from Snagit and Camtasia. Snagit lets you create images, GIFs, and videos to show others exactly what you see. And Camtasia is the famous screen recording and video editing software made easy. Yeah, I love it, Adam. You know, I have to say my story here is that Camtasia kind of saved my soul. When I was working, trying to build my first program, I discovered Camtasia and other TechSmith products, and I needed something that was relatively inexpensive, easy to use, and powerful. Overnight, I went from doing tedious editing, recording, and just whatever I had available to me alone with little coaching, being able to make really super high quality videos in a short amount of time. That sounds amazing. And so if you want to create and share images and videos for better training, tutorials, lessons, and everyday communication, you can do that at techsmith.com. That's techsmith.com. Yeah, I guess I know intuitive product design comes up a lot because I've, I mean, this, how many times have you been in the situation where you're like, God, okay, a user's trying to do this and they keep failing. Why? Okay, well, then you start doing a click path. You click this and click clear and click here and then people check out. Because they're like, well, okay, well, I just want to do this thing. And why can't the product be easier? So you come up with like masks or you know, templates to help people pull people through. And once they get a couple of them, they're like, okay, now I get how the product is working. It's just a little weird, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then, then it starts to come together for them. So the customer education ends up getting them over the hump. Then they understand the sophistication of the product. Like there was a platform that I've been working with more recently. It is, it's, it's really dense and it's really hard and it's hard to navigate around, but it's also ridiculously powerful. And it does make sense, but customers yeah. are like, well, I don't understand this stuff. Where do I go to do this? Where do so you have to have those five minute, three minute, two minute courses to say, you need to go here, do this thing. Oh, okay. Now it's well, that's, and that, that's <laughs> it, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Cause like we know all the use cases for our product or, or a lot of them, like we can see the future because we know our product so well, but customers, especially those who are novices don't. Yeah. And so we're showing them the art of the possible with our product, which also helps to motivate them then to be able to use it in the ways that that will will bring them value. And so like he's teaching you how to do a gap analysis, basically. That's that's what this that's what the <laughs> chapter is about. So once you figured out what the the actual root cause is, like why why isn't the product being bought or used, then you also define the state of like what it should be. I think that's like the art of the possible. Yeah. And and now you as the instructional designer or as the customer education person now you're playing the the detective now you're doing the the investigative journalism that you always talk about dave <laughs> or now the benoit blanc uh, yeah you wanted to call this episode what what can we what can customer education learn from benoit blanc 
you know, we can't because it has to be called customer education 1997. Oh, but you know, to that point, I think there's a couple of threads here I wanted to respond to. Not yeah. necessarily the knives, you know, knives out stuff, which was just an amazing, amazing, amazing movie for a lot of reasons. Um, partly because it captures one of the thing, the most important things I think, in underrated aspects of customer education in its strategic value of in investigative journalism and detect detective work. To be honest, like I feel that we are okay. I want to go back up in our thinking. We're talking about the what should be and the what is. Yeah, that's the gap analysis. You know, I came at gap analyses from a different perspective, my personally, but I came at it from a way that was very methodological. I was taught by this consulting firm to, to basically use this rapid prototyping methodology that allowed you to look at an application and say, well, what's wrong with it? Or what do we need to change? And how do we evolve it? How do we improve it? How do we teach people what to do with it? This as is to be plan. We don't do this enough, Adam, I don't think. A lot of the times, and, and I got to say this again out loud, this is happening less so, but there is this compulsion of people in our space to just get something out there. And we even say this, MVP, get, get stuff out, get to market fast as well, possible. Well, it's like, it's, the, it's content first. It is. Right, like, here's what we need to teach customers about, and we're just going to like put this in order. Well, okay, but like, is, but but is, that countervailing force is like, well, okay, yeah, we got to get this content out there, but what should it be? And how do we evolve that? And how do we make it better? So the concept of the gap analysis is so fundamentally crucial to our our, our tribe that if if you struggle with this and, and just getting doing gap analysis, not just sitting down for one meeting and asking questions, it's that's why I went back to Benoit Blanc um, when I was when I was watching that movie, it just hit me like holy crap a donut hole i'm not going to go further with that to spoil um well you say there's a a form of education for your customers that's mighty peculiar if i do say myself <laughs> was that a decent benoit blanc or was that foghorn leghorn i'm not sure well that was a that was a riff in the movie in and of itself, was it not? Some foghorn leghorn talking. <laughs> <laughs> but that point, that that kind of incisive intelligence, that spirit of investigation, that understanding where the gaps are, that's what the point I wanted to make is that that going back to what this chapter text covers is, you know, we're analyzing. We're always mm -hmm. looking for the gaps. We're always filling mm -hmm. in the blanks. And our job is to help connect the how-to to the customer. With, with, with the what should be. With the what should be. Like he's, he's, right, he's like, what's happening today? What should be? And between that is the gap. And you have to find the root cause of that gap. So the root cause can be like knowledge, skills, product design, incentive, whatever. But like the most important thing, and I love that he's doing this in this chapter is he's not just talking about content. He's actually talking, the what should be has to be a business goal. So he's talking about like, the what should be has to be something like, customers can assemble the, I forget what example he uses, uh, the shed, the storage shed in less than oh, one yeah. hour. And yeah. if you haven't reached that goal, then there's still a gap between the what is and the what should be. And you have to go figure out what that is. Is it because they don't know how to assemble the shed? Is it because they're not 
motivated to assemble the shed? Is it because, uh, right, right, so on and so forth. And that's how you do the gap analysis. And but, but it has to be the gap between achieving an actual result. Oh, cool. oh, yes. Last thing I want to say on this promise is okay. that I feel like this is the lost piece of our craft. Not, not, I don't mean lost because it's not lost. It's, it's the one that doesn't hasn't given getting enough get, gotten enough attention on an executive level. The strategic function of customer education is involved in looking at these gaps and solving them, closing them, and that's yeah. what makes the this good, really, good, really good instructional designers and good customer educator uh, education leaders know that you have to do this. You have to position your efforts in terms of solving real problems for the business. And that's where, and the, and the counterpoint of this is that when I, when I see organizations that prioritize delivery of content over delivery of meaningful content, and what that, what it means is just get it out. I don't care. Just get it out. Just get it out. You know, you should know how to, you, as an instructional designer, you should just know everything. No, this is, this is investigative journalism. This is detective work. Yeah. And, and so like to that end of getting real results, then the question is like, what, like what results do you actually, like what problem are you actually solving? Yeah. And that's, I think like we can spend just a brief moment on chapter four because we've already kind of talked about it because that's where he's talking about the actual driving forces for customer education, because his point is you can expend a lot of time and effort to change anything that you think might need to be changed. Uh, you can develop expensive educational programs, but they're not going to get ROI unless you're solving a meaningful problem. So there are three different <laughs> categories of problem he calls out or opportunities. Uh, one is marketing, one is legal, and one is operation, uh, operational. Uh, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on these, but marketing is like either stimulating demand um, and that he, oh no, sorry. Uh, increased CSAT is the first one that uh -huh. he talks about. Yeah. Right. So you're like reducing complaints. You're increasing customer loyalty, positive word of mouth. Then he talks about stimulating demand. That's interesting because that's either about um, like the examples he gives here are, are like how to do the thing that your company does. So like this would be like a, 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 a ski school at a ski um, lodge. What's a, what's a ski place called? Slopes? Yeah. <laughs> a resort. Slopes. A resort. Yeah. Uh, having a ski school. That's an education business that they have yeah, that encourages you to it's use huge. their product more because they're teaching you how to do their product. Uh, or this is like Schwab teaching you how to invest. And yeah. then the next one that they have I'll, I'll just I'll just go through these three and then we can, yeah, we can comment on it. Second one is how it works. So the example here is like Microsoft training customers on features and procedures like on the conference floor. So they know like how the product actually works. And then the third one is how to buy, like actually making you a more intelligent buyer. So the example that he uses here is Gibson, the guitar company, uh, actually offering a buying guide for electric guitars. So you can choose the right one for yourself. Those all stimulate demand just in different ways because like they address different uh, root causes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you you called out that uh, he, he talks about, uh, he sort of has like the crossing the chasm model here with like the early adopters and the early majority and the late majority and the late adopters. I love seeing laggards. that. 
because that just connected us right back to all the things we've been seeing more recently. It, it, it just, it's like the, the source of the river. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, crossing the chasm had been published before this book, it was around already. So like that model was at least somewhere in, in the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea here, I think is that through customer education, you are helping, uh, get enough early adopters already using your product and using it correctly that then the majority uh like early and late majority will be more comfortable being able to to use it and they need a little bit more help to be able to use it correctly because they're not just going to take as many risks uh and then finally the last uh no actually there's two more marketing ones there's one about differentiating product from the competition so this is like what we would call competitive differentiation today uh, and he uses the the example here of like uh, two competing flour companies, uh, the uh, flour as in baking flour, not as in like flowers uh, that smell good, uh, arose by any other name. But uh, he he talks about like, okay, so like uh, a flour company decides to um, differentiate themselves by putting like innovative uh, recipes in their in their packaging. Right. And then uh, their competitor is like, wait, we can do better. We can publish a cookbook. Uh, and they're they're like one upping each other. Yeah, but that really sells. Um, you know, I, I I've been I've talked with executives that say, hey, this is why we're doing a customer education because we want to differentiate ourselves. They go, yeah. yeah. Well, and like it could even be like table stakes, right? He says it's a criterion for many customers that you teach them how to use the product well. Yeah, we talked about that at length in the other with the other book, but. Okay, I, but I just got a devil's advocate question for you, Adam. Okay, you are. Uh, let, let's frame it up in again a B two B SaaS, um, where both of us kind of got our genesis was smaller companies that are in growth um, cycles, right? And mm -hmm. like, uh, what the heck? What? Why don't some of these organizations? There's so many organizations out there. Why aren't some of them even thinking about customer education? Like what, why aren't you going to try to train your customer? Like, what is it? This is the question that I'm trying to figure out and I'm, I'm still not able to answer it. It's like, why haven't we prioritized this educational motif and done better? Why does it continue to be a problem in a lot of cases? Um, I would say, first of all, if you take his definition here, I think a lot of those organizations would say that they're fulfilling it because they have documentation. Oh, Okay. Right. That's, that's teaching a customer how to use the product and how to use it well, because you, you can read the documentation. Yeah, I can read it. And a lot of, a lot. and a lot of like, and a lot of early stage customers will just read the documentation. So it's sufficient. And when we join organizations, we're typically joining them at the point where they are no longer serving all the early adopters who will just read the documentation and just be able to pick the product up and use it. So that's why we need generally to work with these organizations to expand the breadth of their customer education offerings, uh, both to drive proper, meaningful adoption, as well as over time to differentiate them in the market. Because there's going to be a certain point where, okay, you're an early stage company, maybe you don't have like that many competitors, or maybe you're a disruptor and serving a different class of, of customer. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe then you don't actually need to differentiate based on your customer education. Your product itself is the differentiator. Right. But you're going to get to a point where your market becomes more crowded and educating your your customer, uh, yeah, your customer on how to properly use your product 
will become more of a differentiator if you do it right, because a lot of other companies aren't going to do it right. Okay. So, okay. So you answer my question. Essentially it's, there is an inflection point or a moment in time for most businesses where there's a call to action, whether you acknowledge it or not. Yeah. I mean, Dave, he's talking about like a flower recipe. Like it's not the same as B2B SaaS. No, not the same, but B2B SaaS is way more. I'm trying to connect with it. Back in those days. Yeah, fine. I mean, people can get a recipe book, but it helps sell more when you have that handholding guidance, that understanding the, the framework of tools and educational components that can help somebody actually do the how to. That's yeah. all I was really yeah. getting at. Yeah. And then he, like the last marketing one he talks about is correcting consumer misconceptions, but we don't need to talk about that one because it's not really that relevant to, to our audience. The example here is like Equifax uh, has a data breach, uh, you know, uh, everything well, repeats uh, and they have to educate customers <laughs> about their, their rights under the, uh, the Fair Credit uh, Reporting Act, uh, which sort of bridges into uh, we did marketing. He talks about legal, uh, which could be about like limiting product li- liability. That could be like safety cards complying with government regulation or complying with industry regulation where it's like self-imposed because they don't want the government to come regulate them. And then finally, he talks about uh, operational forces. So this could be teaching customers how to do business with you. Like for instance, um, I think this is especially like vaguely pre-internet, but he's talking about how to (laughs) find who to contact or how to use like company systems, paperwork, docs, especially if you're a reseller, you need to know like how to work with the company. Yeah. So this is, like partner training, we still kind of do this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful too. You know, hey, make sure you, you know, don't call support, go to this thing, or we have a community here, or trying to navigate, trying to at least put like a page up there to help customers understand. Don't call mm-hmm. support, look at this first. Or, yeah, or like, hey, we have a training example gives us, onboarding. Yeah, but even like simple things, like here he gives an example of like teaching a customer at the bank that you need to bring a picture ID to open a bank account is customer education, teaching customers how to do business with you. Because if you show up without an ID, you cannot do business with the bank. Yeah, exactly. And then he brings up, you know, the old chestnut reducing or avoiding costs. Uh, And then finally, uh, promoting vision and values. I thought this was an interesting one. Me too. Uh, I thought the example he gives is like, yeah, do you remember the example in here? Yeah, it was you go to the store to buy a steel chainsaw and um, the salesperson will not let you leave the store unless until you've gone through how to replace the chain, how to start it safely, how, you know, like the whole mm-hmm. thing, an orientation or onboarding on the, the hardware itself. Wow. That's yeah. cool. Because that's they, because they value safety that much. And that's, they should have, they should have made a video with a police officer training you how to use the chainsaw. <laughs> this book has like an interesting undercurrent of like featuring very violent products I think later he does, like there's a rifle company later in the in the oh in the um, too. well not just that um, what was it uh, nicotine tobacco products nic- yeah he talks about tobacco product yeah there's like a, a lot of I, I guess but I guess he has to do it because uh, product training around safety and reducing liability is actually a form of customer education so he like intentionally has to call out violent or dangerous products. Yeah. I mean, I haven't gotten into violent or dangerous products so much, but I have come in contact with a lot more businesses that have regulatory impact. And yep. that's super important because if a customer doesn't know how to, you know, how to perceive that, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you're doing credit reporting, maybe you're doing, so I don't know, uh, maybe you're well, working. No, at- I mean, 
healthcare. Dave, uh, I can give you I can give you a very very tangible example of this. When I was a checker leading customer education, I I'd reported to that. the general counsel. I, I was on the legal team because our primary driving force for customer education was actually helping our clients understand how to comply with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, as well as like the EEOC guidance and all these other factors that govern uh, how you um, adjudicate a background check. If you get that wrong, you're going to get sued. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that, that, that affects the entire timbre and tone of your your training curriculum. And now your customer education program was a lot about regulatory stuff rather than just how to use it, which is that mm -hmm. skills, which is the knowledge, which is around encompassing the space, the problem space where the pro product is going to solve the solutions for. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's really relevant. It is, it is. And so like you have the, those, so those are the driving forces, right? Those are the reasons you would do customer education. And then he basically recommends that you balance those with where you see potentially restraining forces. This is a marketing thing, right? The, it's called force field analysis, I think. Uh, I remember learning all of this in like Star marketing Trek. classes that I took around the same time as he wrote this book. And I don't think marketing uses all these concepts anymore, but like it's really taking me back to the class that I took. But so the restraining forces here are like, if there's no ROI potentially for putting a, a training program together or an education program around the need that you're responding to. So here, like he recommends mitigating that by having kind of like a base case and a conservative case in case you need to like scale back what you're proposing. Yeah. Uh, could be the company's inexperience with customer education. They don't see the value. This sounds familiar. Uh-huh. Um, and this like misperception of, uh, quote, customers know our product already. What more can we teach them? But he points out that this is often misjudged because, and I don't think um, the Heath brothers uh, uh, made to stick was written yet. That's that comes later. But this is where I think he would have brought up the idea of the curse of knowledge. Like, as as experts That's on our own product, we know way more than customers know. Yeah, you know, the other we thing. overestimate how easy it is to learn. We do. Because when you're there and you use it every day, it makes sense to you, not other people. Yeah. Yeah. With this restraining forces section, though, I wanted to comment on a couple of things. What first is the no ROI. And I will say that I've left roles before because I was blocked from being able to even calculate it. And, and that's bad because like you can only go so far with the program until you can get line of sight to how different, you know, you know, how I can, can I see my customer journey through my education material? Can I correlate that to an outcome? Can I show that what I'm doing actually has value? If I can't show that, then I'm worried because yeah, well, it's like, I, I can't do my job because I can't, it's like I'm blind. Yeah. Or, or the way that I would frame it is if like these restraining forces that he talks about still exist today, right? These, these exist as so. clearly as they ever have. If you can't calculate clear ROI, or if you're not proposing training programs that at least point towards ROI, or if your company doesn't really know what customer education is about, or if your company overestimates how easy the product is to use, um, then you're you're inherently going to have a harder time making customer education happen, uh, or or proposing specific customer education product uh, projects. So what that means is you then need to go look at the driving forces and find more relevant driving forces to attach 
customer education too. So there's more motivation to make the investment in those programs so that you're not spending as much time trying to push back against those three restraining forces that we talked about. This yeah. is more relevant than ever. It's more relevant than ever. The last point I'd want to make on this before we move on is that that inexperience for the customer education part, that one should be less of a problem today, but it's still a problem. And one, yeah, what I want to say is there's two parts to this that I want to respond with. Number one, if you're a leader or an executive and you're listening to this podcast, what I encourage you to do is go out there and read uh, and, and familiarize yourself with the space. Two, if you are going back to other podcasts we've done, please spend the time to read some of the textbooks that are out there right now. Adam, your book, Daniel and Barry's book, maybe even these two books that we've just reviewed, other books in the mar market, know your craft. And, and that will help a lot because if you know the plays and the activities that you can do to help out and you're proactive about that, you'll get less in a situation where people are just telling you to do stuff from a leadership perspective that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and those books, my book is called Customer Education. Uh, Daniel and Barry's book is called The Customer Education Playbook. Uh, you can find them. They're way more available than the books we're reviewing right now because they're more recent. And uh, cheaper. And I think, <laughs> and Sometimes some cases, this, yeah, this, this one actually, this, this Honebine one was, was relatively cheap, but uh, may not be once we have a surge of demand after people listen to this episode. This episode is brought to you by Skilljar. In customer education, we know that trained customers are your best customers, which is why companies turn to Skilljar to drive adoption, retention, and efficiency, support their products, and to build healthier, more profitable organizations and strengthen the power of your brand. You don't say, well, just look at some of the great companies that use Skilljar to power their own training programs. That's companies like LinkedIn, Cisco, U-Haul, Spotify, and more. They all trust Skilljar to train their customers, partners, or even employees. And I like that it's well-architected with quality connectors and integrations to Salesforce and HubSpot. We both appreciate their amazing partnership from their customer success team. Get your personal demo for Skilljar at skilljar.com. Customer training made easy. Very good. And we're going to pick up today. I think we wrapped up from talking about chapter four. We were talking about driving forces. Yeah, marketing I, I, want, I, I think this is a great place for us to pick up because we pick up with a German folk legend. Ooh. Yeah. So the this, Nuremberg this is, funnel. This okay. is the legend of the Nuremberg funnel. This is something I wish I knew about when I wrote my book because I, I think I use this analogy. I mean, I, I definitely use it in presentations and things like that, but I think I also use it in, in the book without knowing that there's an actual German folk legend that's about this um and and actually now working for uh, a company that has its roots in germany and having a lot of german co-workers uh th they probably could have all told me about this uh so you know really missed opportunity but the nuremberg funnel is a legendary funnel that lets you pour knowledge into someone's head god that would be great yeah, and apparently there's a there's actually another book about this called The Nuremberg Funnel by a guy named John Carroll, um, wherein he compares uh, technical education to that funnel, basically saying, like, we wish that funnel existed for technical education, but it doesn't. I haven't picked up that book, but that's another potential uh, pseudo-customer education book that's out there in the world that maybe we'll get our hands on at some point. Yeah. 
Well, but yeah, um, but now he's talking about the process of customer education. And and I think what's in, what was interesting, I felt like I learned a lot about this, and and some of this is applicable, and some of it is maybe not so much anymore. But we understand that educational opportunities, the opportunity to do customer education, exists throughout the whole process of choosing a platform or a, a product mm -hmm. to use. You've got what we start off with a goal formation. It's like, what am I actually? My boss will tell me, "What are you trying to do? What you, what's the problem you're trying to solve?" Oh, I want to purchase yeah. a learning management platform so that I can distribute all of our content at scale and stop doing training live. Okay, cool. Yeah, and remember, this is this the the goal here is typically a marketing goal. So, uh -huh. right, because this is a marketing book and customer education is being defined as a marketing discipline. So, in that goal formation, he's basically talking about four stages of uh, of, of a buying journey. There's identifying needs, uh, and then there is setting priority, uh, narrowing preferences, and uh, planning intentions, which basically takes you to, uh, to that. That's all in goal, goal formation, right? That's all. In, yeah. I think those are the goals that, that, that you're attaching to. Mm -hmm. um, so he's, he's like, he gives an example here of like Charles Schwab having a mutual fund selection guide. So this is like basically one booklet, one, one piece of collateral that walks you through all those stages. You're identifying needs by um, having like a, do I need an investment plan questionnaire? And then in terms of setting priority, he says they mentioned the average return for each fund. So that helps create urgency because you want to invest now so you can get that rate of return. Um, also sets priority by describing it as like a simple four steps. So the product is positioned is easier to use. So again, you have more priority to be able to use it. You've reduced uh, potential objections. Yeah. Uh, the narrowing preferences is like there's a table of different investment options and a worksheet where you can uh, work through how you're going to allocate your assets. And finally, with planning intentions, it informs them of the minimum purchase requirements. So that won't become like a last minute uh, blocker to closing the deal. So you've educated the customer at every step down this funnel, even just in one piece of collateral to be able to choose a better fund, which is within Schwab's goal because Schwab is trying to help um, customers who otherwise wouldn't be investors because they don't work uh -huh. with like, you know, like full brokers. They, they, they want like a low, a low cost, low overhead broker like Schwab and otherwise they just wouldn't be investing. So Schwab is helping open up the market and educate them so they could become buyers of that product, which is cool. That's super cool. And then, yeah, and then we funny. go on. So, so then we go on to the other step. So like there is this whole choosing process of forming goals, then acquiring the product, then consuming mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And then the last term that I haven't heard very often is disposition or what happens at the end. Like if normally if you use a, what, what were we talking about in, in the book, uh, the concept of like going to buy, you know, get lunch and, or you have a TV dinner, or a, you know, a frozen dinner you put in the microwave. Yeah. It's easy. It's two minutes. You get it out, you eat it. And then disposition is throwing it away. But these days, if you live in Seattle, like me, throwing things away can get very complicated because you've got yeah. three or four bins with different kinds of things that you have to put in each one of the bins. And well, he calls this oh. out, right? Like recycling, I think is actually one of the options that he gives for disposition. Yeah. Yeah. I thought but that yes, was, yes, you're right. That can get complicated depending on, depending on where you are and how easy or hard it is to, to dispose things in Amsterdam. We have actually very strange underground trash cans that are also hard to uh, throw things out in. 
But like, so the thing is, like, we have to think he's not talking about like software here, right? He's talking about like actual Product. actual products. So acquisition here, I mean, he could be talking about um, software as well, but like the point about having disposition as part of the life cycle implies that we're talking primarily about like actual uh, goods. Yeah, but I would say one thing to that, I, I just to be just for completeness sake, I think there is a disposition step in software that we don't often think about, which is what happens when, a, when uh, like, I've, I've learned all this stuff and I've been using the platform, but there's this case of I'm leaving the platform. And I think some of the best and most, I, I don't know, I didn't even know the word, companies with a tremendous amount of integrity have actually built an offboarding yeah thing no i i agree i agree with what you're saying in fact not, like, important, uh, not really important but it's there no no i mean like at personio we actually have a version of this as well because uh we have a a, a target customer size and sometimes we work mm -hmm. with uh very fast growing companies where oh. we know that they are just growing so quick that in a certain number of years uh, they're going to be way too big for personio right? Because we, we focus on small and medium businesses. We know how to serve small and medium businesses and mid-market really, really well. But like, if you're then, you know, if you're going to become like a, a 10,000 person company and we see you on the path of that, we need to start working with you early to figure out how uh, you will graduate to, to Workday or a company like that that's more equipped to serve a 10,000 person company. At scale, yeah. At scale with, with like, yeah, with all the 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 different you know backends more complicated uh, features that you need to support a company of that size. So anyway, like I, I see what you're saying, and that it is actually a part of the customer lifecycle. Um, we don't. Right, I, I just is, said it because we don't often call it out, and I think it's important to do so at least. Yeah, but I think like do do something there. But the point the point is like we don't we don't. Um, we don't educate the customer on disposition in the same way that we would need to, if it's like, here's how to recycle this. Yeah. Yeah. True. That that's what, that's what, that's what I'm calling out is the difference. So, okay. So you got acquisition, which is like how to access, buy and get the product home mm -hmm. or install it, I guess. Then on there's no, yeah. uh, actually installation is the next step. That's consumption. So it's product training. It's like preparation, which is the assembly or installation use could be functional. Like, like a VCR manual teaching you how to like set the, the clock. Or I like the artistic one that artistic. you have on there now. That is, you know, that's something that I've had so much fun with uh, being in these fast moving B2B SaaS companies where you work with customers occasionally that have come up with this amazing way to use your platform. And those mm -hmm. use cases you love to show off because they're elegant, they're creative but they also show off how your platform can be used in really cool ways. Yeah, for sure. And I think like at, at Slack, we would always call this the art of the possible. And it was a big part of how we worked with customers. It was a big part of what our sales team and our marketing team worked with enterprise customers to do, to show them the art of the possible with Slack, all the creative ways that you could use it. Uh, because Slack was a blank canvas in a lot of ways, right? Like within yeah. the UI. Um, the example they give here is like Home Depot doing DIY workshops, do it yourself. Uh, so you can use the products they sell to do something more creative or artistic. Um, but consumption could also be maintenance and storage, like how to how to how to care for and store a product properly. 
And then there was disposition like we talked about. Yeah. And he's talking from an instructional design standpoint, you're writing your performance objectives according to those goals. And basically okay. recommends that as you do that, you consider the what he calls the ABCDs, the audience behavior, conditions, and degree. Question for you. Is this not part of what we would call kind of a job task analysis? Uh, it is a job. It's somewhere between a job task analysis and uh, writing learning objectives. Uh-huh. Like it maps, it maps there. And in fact, if, if we remember the other, the 1984 book where she's describing uh, a loose instructional design process, you've, you've largely got the same process here as well, where you're kind of writing, you're, right. you're figuring out what the objective is and then you're writing an assessment first based on that analysis of the performance goal. Uh, and then you're writing the curriculum afterwards to fit that. This episode is brought to you by Intellum. You know Intellum. We've had them on the show before. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you know the customer education leads to retention and revenue. So the Intellum platform gives you everything you need to educate your customers, partners, and employees on the products and services you sell. They've got a great platform. They've got Evolve as an authoring tool. And with Intellum, put it all together, you can deliver highly personalized and engaging learning experiences, give your customers a single destination for all their learning needs, and create and manage a wide range of content. So check them out today at try.intellum.com slash C-E-Labs. That's C-E-L-A-B-S. So that's what's going on there. And, and I think that's kind of a lead into like you and I would read that and think, okay, yeah, this is like instructional design. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, this is our job. It's, 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 <laughs> this is an instructional design chapter, but it's a lead into what I think is a fundamentally more interesting chapter, which is the one where he talks about product systems. And you called this out before as being like one of the more interesting parts of the book. You know, let me take a lead here is that in chapter six, we're talking about product, the, the, like you're saying, the product systems. What this evoke, when I was reading through the book, I was starting to think about a problem or a challenge that I've had all throughout the last decade where, okay, I'm sitting here in a professional services team or whatever. And then I get, I need to go talk to a product and figure out, you know, stuff from them, from documentation. And, and I've always like had this kind of like, all right, we've got product here and you've got support here and then I'm here. But the, the frame up of a product system is it's, not, and this is something that I've said, I think unintentionally, but this maps to the concept of a product system. I've always said your education is part of the product. Your enablement is part of the product. If you're in an organization where that's lagging so far, you know, it's a month, two months, three months out before you have updates to the product, to the educational material that your product is delivering, you got a big problem because this is, it, they all have to be here. You have to have support, education, product working in unison as kind of like a wheel to be able to deliver the product, deliver the training for that product, deliver the support for that product as well. Mm -hmm. So that it's an integrative web of activities that happen. And I like the way that, uh, that the author, you know, Peter is just putting this together and saying, this is a system, not just a one thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and here, I think he's getting to the heart of something that has always been challenging for customer education professionals, like apparently even in 1997, but certainly, uh, certainly today as well, where there's always that question of why do we need customer education? Couldn't we just invest in making the product more intuitive? So he's tackling this, this head on and, and he, he starts in a contentious way. Like here's the quote. He says, the very presence of customer education accompanying a product, whether a manual videotape or instruction on the label indicates that there is a fault with the product for if products were perfect, there would be no need for customer education or customer support. So he's being cheeky here, right? Because obviously products do need customer support. Um, and therefore, Always. by the transitive property, I don't know which which uh, logical property. Mathematical is, principle but, that we're using here. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah, I don't know which one. But like, therefore, also, they, they all need customer education because like products will never be completely autodidactic. There are, there are very few products out there um, that are so simple and intuitive that they need no instructions on how to use them. The example of one he gives is a doorknob. A doorknob should not come with instructions on how to use it, maybe on how to install it, but not how to use it. Um, but most products do actually need education and support because the new technologies, and again, I'm quoting here, might be too complex and overload the cognitive abilities of customers. Or the facts of the product change continually. Like they're constantly getting updates or something like Which that. Which is what we're, we're dealing with now. In current it sounds time. like SaaS. Sounds, sounds like, like SaaS. SaaS. So he describes this as being all of a product system where you've got product design, customer education, and customer support working uh, all, all the same way. And so he starts by talking about the product design part of it. And again, the goal being like, get the product design to be good enough that you minimize the need for customer education and customer support. Because mm -hmm. customer education and support shouldn't be basically like a, a palliative for a bad product. So here's where he gives the example again. He goes back to the design of every, everyday things and he's talking about the Norman doors, uh, which uh, I'm realizing now we talked about in the last episode, not this one, but that's like a door where um, it looks like uh, from the handle that you should have to push it, but in fact, you have to pull it. So to compensate for that, they had to write pull on the door to get people to use it properly. So that's an example of like needless instructions when you could have actually just designed the thing intuitively. Um, but the point is like the more, the more you add in terms of the psychological design uh, and, and here he brings up that principle of like, you can, you as a human can like kind of actively process seven plus or minus two things at the, at any given time. Yep. Yep. But the more you go beyond that, the more you won't absorb. But um, what you can do to make products more usable so, so by the way, like the, the example he's giving for this is, I think he's talking about like a, a, a remote control where if a remote control has um, like 20 buttons, that's way beyond seven plus or minus two. So you're never going to know what all those buttons do unless they're labeled and organized. So what you can do is you can chunk the UI or you can categorize it. Uh, so for example, all the buttons that do similar things can be in a similar area of the remote and can be a similar color. Mm -hmm. in addition to being labeled. And that's going to make the remote more usable. Or you can have feedback loops where you do something and then the product responds to you in such a way where you understand what the what the feature does. And we yeah. have that, right? We have that in, in software all the time. 
you click a yeah. button in the software and then something happens. Yeah, I mean, like I'm sitting here looking at my Steam Deck and um, the reason I bring it up is because I was sitting there last night uh, playing Civilization on it. I can't believe it actually will play that and it plays it quite well. But the inter I was struggling with the interface and I was thinking very much about this book that I'm reading. I'm like, well, how do you teach me how to use the interface? The coolest thing about this piece of hardware is that when the games load, there's a screen that pops up on it showing which buttons, which parts of the plat of the device itself will control the game that you're going to play. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my God. And because sometimes uh, if you dive into any kind of video game, there's always this moment of, I'm just going to, you know, F around and find out what works for a little while because yeah. games games are a very good example of product. I'm pressing design. B. Why isn't he jumping? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, come on, and then it will prompt you and stuff. So that that was a really good games. Example. Yeah, games are built on feedback loops like that. It's a crucial part of, of game design. But when they're not, so that was an example of Steam Deck and Valve Corporation putting customer education into the application in in a moment of need. Right, because the product itself doesn't have the product design to warrant that you you don't need to educate the customer on it. It's yeah, not. I mean, that's, fa that's fascinating. It's, enough. it's current, and then it, it's really cool to see these kinds of examples. I'm always looking at them now in the con context of customer education. Anything I use, yeah, for sure. Um, and so, so that's so that's product. He also he talks about physiological design, but that's not really relevant to. Um, tech uh it is relevant obviously to like physical is it products. is it not though because the more i think about it i mean well it's hardware design, sure it, hardware. You know, i've had conversation with people about that but hardware increasingly looks like software and one of the conversations i had this year with uh a person from a medical devices company you know and b2b to c type medical device but it was working for a company a really complicated situation but there was so much interface discussion and customer education need that they were really struggling. No, you're right. Like wearables and things like that, that it, it physiological design definitely applies if you're in like hardware or wearables or something like that. Yeah. I was thinking about software. It doesn't really like software. True that, that's I mean, true. that's true. all psychological design. I was trying to remember what example he gives her for physiological design, but I don't, I, I didn't write it down. So I don't have it on me. So, okay. So again, we're talking about like product design, customer education, and customer support working together in a product system. So that was, that was product. Then for customer education, he's, he's saying like what we teach mostly depends on the product design, but he, he pokes, he pokes at it a little bit and he's like, well, but necessarily does it need to be that way? It, it could go the other way. Like it was kind of an interesting thought experiment. Like you could um, start by educating the customer on how the thing works and then design it around how you intend to educate the customer. So he gives an example of like, it's like some, some sort of display that you set up and before they actually ever designed the display, they wrote the instructions for how they wanted the customer to put it together. And then they actually designed it to the specs that they wrote about how to put it together to make sure that it was simple to put together. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Not realistic. No, it actually happened. Like once, it, but <laughs> once, yeah, it actually happened once. Uh, we don't, we don't, we don't see it. You don't, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, we've been recording a lot it, today. It actually, it actually happened. Trademark. Uh, and then there's customer support. So uh, here he's talking about the hot new trend of online support. Uh, 
again, we have to read, we have to read the quote. Do you want to read the quote, Dave? Computer and software companies have been doing this for years through bulletin board services, VBSs. Ooh, wow. Yeah. So taking me back. So, yeah. Do you remember VBSs? Oh God. Yeah. I mean, I had a, at one point I had an early PC and I had a modem and I would connect into all this stuff and it was just horrible, horrible. Yeah. Experience. All text. So these are like, Ugh. these but are it, like it pre, pre World Wide Web, like early internet forums, basically, uh, for our Gen Z audience. That's that's what we're talking about. Back um, in my day, <laughs> Grandpa exactly. Dave used the internet and it was text. Well, that's where I went to mansplain how Star Trek worked. <laughs> anyway, uh, so these were early online communities that they're talking about here, uh, in addition to more traditional support channels like going through the phone. Uh, and then he gives an example of putting it all together. So the example he uses here is is uh, Macintosh. So now we're actually getting back into tech. Okay. We're yeah. now talking about hardware and software. Uh, and so the design... He calls out, obviously, like Mac product design is really simple. They differentiated themselves in the market by having uh, a GUI, graphical user interface. Um, the packaging and, and the unboxing teaches you step by step how to uh, unpack and assemble and, and put your Mac together, plus uh, some pretty sleek docs and uh, a manual. And uh, then for the support side, they actually, he, he calls out a trend where uh, previously they were only doing support through resellers, but now uh, they were revolutionizing their support model by actually giving uh, end users uh, a 1-800 support number that they could call. And this is, I think, you know, still a few years before uh, Apple Geniuses and uh, Apple stores and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty cool, especially in that era. I remember yeah. using computer technology in that that area era, and it was it, it's often infuriating because now what you, you take for granted with Google experts, you know, like you ask mm -hmm. a question, somebody like, "Oh, I googled that for you," but, but there's su such a proliferation of of material. You don't online. like sending people the "Let me Google that for you" site? Oh, I do all the time, but <laughs> the, the it didn't exist then. There wasn't that opportunity, and yeah, it was true, infuriating true. when you hit a wall and you go. Oh, I don't know how to do this. Now you're talking maybe days, or you have to pick up the phone and might get a, you know, you were on on hold to get questions answered. I was that person on the other line in the early 2000s, not very long after this book, where I was the support line for a very sophisticated platform, and it was a very difficult job, Hard, one of the hardest ones I've had. Yeah, yeah, and so you can imagine that at the time as well, the idea of being able to open up support to uh, a community of specialists on, on a BBS is actually, I mean, they're actually like, we're making, we're making fun of it because it's like early technology and now we have better ways of doing communities, but like communities, like community software these days is not fundamentally different from what BBSs were doing at the time in terms of being able to connect people with expertise to other people to solve each other's problems. So it actually was a, a huge, huge innovation.